Rarely wrong, always right. Sam Rajofsky here, your host of the What's Right Show, brought to you by Sam and Ash Injury Law, because you deserve what's right. Now, friends, I'm going to have updates for you, of course, uh, of all the election shenanigans, uh, some updates on the legal mess down in Georgia, some observations on my part of instances where (laughs) certain Democrats, names you will no doubt recognize, have engaged in exactly the same type of behavior, actions that Trump stands criminally accused of. Uh, of course, no prosecutions in those cases. But in the uh, in the meantime, I, I do want to start with a very important issue here that you know is of of, of dear uh, care and concern to me, and that is the subject of free speech. Now, I'm a of course practicing attorney uh, here in Las Vegas, and so I you know I'm. I'm always looking at these things through a constitutional lens. And uh, one thing that I have increasingly been critical of is the role that government plays in moderating free speech on social media platforms. And I include, by the way, when I say social media pro- platforms, I include places like, let's say, uh, well, YouTube, right? Because uh, YouTube is Google. I mean, it's, it's, people go on there and, and speak. And, and, and in fact, a lot of podcasts exist solely on YouTube. So folks are out there uh, sharing opinions and whatnot. And, and here's, here's the, the, the issue. Right, right this morning, minutes before I went on air, I, I saw a story here where Glenn Beck, who is a uh, you know, nationally recognized name, conservative voice, uh, saying that all of his podcasts that he had put up on Apple iTunes had been taken down suddenly. Now this caught my eye because it, it dovetailed into another story that I've been following, which I'll mention in just a moment. But, you know, I, of course, have this program on uh, Apple Podcasts. I have it elsewhere as well, as does Glenn have his show on different platforms. But when a giant big company for no reason decides to suddenly take down your podcast, your entire library of shows that people go and listen to, that have opinions that are your own. And by the way, these opinions can be right, they can be wrong. There's a consequence, there's a chilling effect on the free exchange of ideas in our society. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the legal framework here because it's always interesting. The foundational uh, kind of separation where the First Amendment applies and where it doesn't apply uh, is, is, is the government restricting the speech or is it a private individual or a private sector that's restricting your speech, right? That's the, you know, the First Amendment attaches to government action. So the government cannot, well, with very few exceptions, very narrow exception, uh, the government may not restrict the content of your speech. The government may also, may not also uh, force you to say anything, right? There's no, no such thing as compelled speech. They can't make you express certain ideas, certain opinions, etc. So that's, that's it. And so historically, right, the defense of social media platforms uh, has been, well, it's private property. These are private entities. This is, you know, Facebook, Meta, and Twitter, uh, Google, whatnot, with, with YouTube. I mean, these are private companies that are making decisions about what is on their servers. Uh, 
and they're certainly free to have more restrictive rules about the type of information that's put up and shared, right? And you've all, you all understand this and have heard it. And so yesterday, well, I'll start this two days ago, a Michael Schellenberger, you know who this is? Schellenberger is a very interesting guy. He came out, became very prominent in the midst of COVID as a skeptic of government-led science, quote-unquote science orthodoxy, on not just the origins of COVID, but also COVID mitigation measures and the vaccine and whatnot. But Schellenberger, he's an author. He's a former PR guy, and he, and he, but he became an investigative journalist. Um, one thing that's interesting about him, he's a former Dem. So he became an independent back in 2022. He ran, believe it or not, as a Democratic candidate for governor uh, before that, got about uh, 0.05% of the vote, I think. Uh, supported uh, the recall then in 2021 of Gavin Newsom and later left the Democrat Party. Now, he two days ago wrote this piece on a documentary that's called Thrown to the Wind. Now, this documentary is really important. And hear me out because there's a lot of relevance uh, in this documentary to some of the things that we have viscerally experienced going through the COVID era. Now, the documentary is not about COVID at all, okay? It's about whales and whales and dolphins and other sea creatures that are dying at a rapid pace. And the documentary, it's, a, it's directed by a guy, a guy named Jonah Markowitz. Uh, the documentary is about the fact that this, these deaths are being caused by the wind industry. Now, the wind industry, all the people out there that are building uh, the, you know, the wind turbines that are out there that are, that are uh, by the way, killing birds and other things, but the, the boats out there in the North Atlantic that are traveling to these remote areas and building these turbines uh, are creating enormous disruption. There's boat traffic in areas where there was no boat traffic before. There's a high decibel sonar mapping that disorients whales and separates calves from their mothers. This is all... I mean, legit and documented. However, the scientists funded by the United States government, by our, using our tax dollars, all deny that this is the case. And this documentary goes out and really disproves that and shows how the government, using, you know, so-called science, is lying to us. And that these scientists paid for by the Biden administration, are perfectly willing to cover up an ecological disaster all in the name of clean energy environmentalism. Now, if you're scratching your heads and going, well, what is this all about, God? Oh, Sam, what are you talking about? Well, you have to understand that environmentalists out there pushing agendas, uh, particularly those closely aligned with Team Biden, they're not actual environmentalists. They're, you know, the clean energy environmentalists are at odds versus actual environmentalists because actual environmentalism can't be monetized. <laughs> but this clean energy stuff is, and there's enormous money behind it. And so what happens? Science goes out the window, right? Forget science. It doesn't matter. Enter Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. So... Michael Schellenberger puts this piece up and Facebook immediately removes it. 
piece today by Michael Schellenberger. Facebook censors accurate information linking wind energy to whale deaths. Now tell me if this doesn't sound familiar to you. Quote, the censorship came in the form of a factcheck.org article from March 31st, 2023, which relied entirely on U.S. government sources. So Facebook shut this down and covering themselves, wrapping themselves in the legitimacy of this BS factcheck.org site that literally plagued us throughout the entirety of COVID, right? Now you're wrong about COVID. COVID's deadly, Sam. It's terrible. And we need to keep kids at home away from school for at least three years, according to factcheck.org. It's all we heard. Oh, this, the vaccine. It's perfectly safe, Sam. Of course. Any vaccine skepticism has been disproven by factcheck.org. Just have a look there. And so this site, along with others like it, just regurgitate the BS, nonsense, government-paid science over and over again. And what's the point here? The point is, is Mark Zuckerberg talks about how Facebook and now his, you know, his dream meta world where we wear, I guess we wear, you know, uh, headsets and we go into some... uh, some metaverse where we're digitally interacting with each other in a virtual environment, that that is the future of human beings interacting. So if that is the fact, and I, you know, I, I of course, dread such a world, but imagine, of course, I know many of you go to Facebook, go to Twitter, go online to exchange ideas Has the internet become the new public square? Look at this. I mean, you got prosecutors going into Trump's DM messages, right? You've got them pouring through his Twitter. Clearly, what you say on the internet is important, is of legal consequence. So the million-dollar question I have as a lawyer, and I have an answer to it, and I'll give it to you here after the break, The million-dollar question is, at what point does First Amendment constitutional protections, at at what point do those attach to speech happening online? By which mechanism do we protect this? Because if we cannot guarantee First Amendment rights to people online, regardless of whether it's on a private server or not, I think that this republic and great democracy of ours will forever be lost. You don't want to miss this. I have an answer to this. Sam Marjofsky, News Talk 840 KXNT. You're listening to The What's Right Show, brought to you by Sam and Ash, Injury Law. If you've been in an accident, there's no reason to call a sleazy lawyer. It's not just about the settlement check. It's about representing your interests and your values. So call Sam and Ash at 702-820-1234 or visit samandashlaw.com. Welcome back, folks. Sam Marjofsky here, News Talk 840 KXNT. All right, here on the What's Right Show, we are great advocates for the freedom of speech and expression. The First Amendment is something that uniquely separates us from other countries. I could talk for hours how our laws differ from those 
of other developed so-called Western democracies. Uh, in Ireland right now, for example, they're considering codifying into law prohibitions against hate speech. Hate speech, of course, is not defined, leaving it open to subjective feelings about what qualifies and would thus be illegal. Absolutely inconceivable, and it's because our Constitution forbids such criminalization here in the U.S. Now, uh, Facebook shut down a news story about whales dying because of, uh, well, because of environmental disruptions caused by all the wind turbines being built in the North Atlantic. This documentary is a piece ostensibly made by people who are deeply concerned about whales, about the earth, about things that liberals ought to care about. But wait, hold the phone. Facebook is shutting down efforts even by notable journalists like Michael Schellenberger to spread the word of this documentary because why? Government scientists in America, in the U.S., funded with our tax dollars, are calling this nonsense. Why are they calling it nonsense? Because, of course, they're getting paid to call it nonsense. Their motives are to promote clean energy environmentalism. Versus, you know, like actual concern for the environment because that, you know, you can't monetize that. But the money, the money in clean energy is enormous. And so the Biden people and many others, of course, who are helpful to them and their cause throughout the world push this, even at the expense of, you know, actual sound policy. So the point is here, we ought to be having a debate online, the new public square, on what is the cause of whales dying. I think it's an important problem. People probably, I mean, I mean, whales are sort of nice creatures, inoffensive. Generally speaking, I think conservatives and liberals can agree that dead whales are not a desirable place to be uh, or a thing to have in this world. So we ought to be talking about it, but we're not because it out of hand gets shut down and removed by King Zuckerberg on Meta, on Facebook. I'm meeting one of my friends uh, later this evening who is a Facebook executive, uh, and uh, I don't want to out him, but uh, we have a lot of very similar opinions on things. So no doubt I will get some insight on this. And I'll perhaps, if there's anything juicy, we'll report back to you later. But I wanted to get to the story now because it's happening real time. And I didn't want to wait until tomorrow. I think eventually there will be a case, if there isn't already one in the works, for example, Berenson versus Biden. That's one case. Alex Berenson, the journalist who was, I think he was, what is he, formerly LA Times, New York Times, New York Times, I think formerly New York Times, but he came out against COVID and was, was removed from Twitter at the behest of the Biden administration. That case moving up and in, into the Supreme Court eventually, I think, may determine something of great importance. Mark Zuckerberg has for years, has for years called Facebook the digital equivalent of a town square. Now, it's funny that he uses that precise language because it may be that language that bites him in his, 
I don't know, radiantly white derriere. There's a case, Supreme Court case. I've mentioned it here on this program. Those of you who are longtime listeners uh, may recognize, remember this. There's a case from 1980, Pruneyard Shopping Center v. Robbins. This is a shopping center out in California that booted some nice kids who went out there, of all things, to set up a Greenpeace booth. So sort of on the same level here with this whale stuff. They were out there supporting Greenpeace, and guess what happened? The shopping center security guard told them to get lost, said this is private property. Now they sued under the California Constitution, which guarantees free speech, and case made its way up into the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court uh, came down with a very narrow ruling, which was if there is a free speech uh, guarantee in a state constitution like California does, although other states have it as well, then there is a limited right of free speech on private property, and here's the condition, where, where the private property owners has invited the public onto the property. Well, I, don't, I mean, I would think that the entire purpose of Twitter, of Facebook, of Instagram, of, of all social media is we are being invited in to literally talk amongst ourselves, right? I mean, that's, it is the new public square. Zuckerberg is right. And one of the things that the Supreme Court said back in 1980, now remember, it's 1980, right? What was happening in the 80s? Well, in the lead up to the 80s, you had, people weren't meeting in, in, in park squares anymore, in town squares. They weren't meeting you know, in, on, on open streets. They were all going to shopping centers. Life moved into the suburbs in the 60s and 70s, and people began meeting up at the mall, not on Main Street, not on public sidewalks, but on private property. The people were there. The congregating was there. And so the Supreme Court reasoned that now certain free speech rights, by virtue of the public square moving onto private property, ought to be protected. And this decision, radical decision, that stepped on private property owners' rights back in 1980, you know, the Burger Court, not known necessarily for being mega conservative, uh, came down with this case. But this is going to be now revived. And I believe sooner or later there will be a case that goes before the Supreme Court. And mark my words, they're going to go back to 1980 and dig up Pruneyard. They're going to dig this case up and they're going to attach meaning to it in the modern time. And every time one of these, you know, one of these glorious social media CEOs says, oh, the world meets here on our platform. Fabulous. You're right. They do. And because of that, we ought to have a freedom of expression. If we don't have it, if we give a select few in this country the ability to shut down discussion, whether at the behest of the government or not, then that, I think, creates an enormously problematic, um, you know, threat to our democracy. Because it's effectively a banning of free speech, although certainly by private actors who have proven themselves wholly unreliable uh, in their defense of free expression. Okay, when we come back, a quick uh, note on this about Section 230, which is, you know, this I talked about a lot. I, this, this stuff is it's going to change in our lifetime soon. Fascinating. Sam Marjofsky, News Talk 840, KXNT. You're listening to The What's Right Show. 
Personal injury law is constantly changing. Uber and Lyft accidents aren't like other cases, but most law firms haven't kept up. Don't trust a new case to a lawyer who's stuck in the past. Call Sam and Ash, 702-820-1234, or visit SamAndAshLaw.com. Your place for common sense conservatism here Monday through Friday, 1 to 3 p.m. Sam Rajofsky, you're listening to the What's Right show brought to you by Sam and Ash Injury Law. Uh, this thing, by the way, this lawsuit that's dropped, uh, the Diane Feinstein deal. I just need a quick a moment about this. A premise of it, of course, is uh, I, th- I think it sounds to me from what I'm hearing, like a lot of nonsense. But the, the idea is that Diane Feinstein and her, her now-deceased husband's estate are victims of elder abuse, manipulation at the hands of their uh, trustees there uh, of the trust. And so, okay, so Diane Feinstein is too old and too out of it to be able to manage her financial affairs, and yet she is voting as a member, as one of 100 U.S. senators determining the fate and direction of our country. It's funny because the Democratic Party is starting to be the party of, well, barely there mentally and physically, leaders. We have Fetterman. We have Feinstein. Biden himself is drooling, walking around. You heard his my, uh, uh, Maui comments yesterday. Couldn't even remember Maui. Um, anyway, it's, it's crazy stuff. Fun, fun anecdote, though. A friend of mine popped up uh, this morning and said, hey, you know, that's my uncle that's getting sued. So he's one of the two trustees who's gotten sued. Big-time Democrat. Uh, so this is a war against huge Democrats. All these names in this are all luminaries inside the party, mega, mega wealthy people, and it's going to get ugly. Uh, so this is, yeah, Democrat on Democrat violence and uh, not a good look for Feinstein if she's intending to stay in office through the end of her term. Okay. All right. I need to quickly just put a button on this. This thing I, I mentioned the Supreme Court here needs to come in and extend free speech protection to private social media and to online, to privately owned servers online. Doesn't matter if it's a public space or a private space. If it's online, if somebody has set up a site for people to interact and express their opinions, they are there by invitation to do just that. They deserve in the United States to be protected. And there is precedent for this. I mentioned it just before. There's a case from 1980 that said that if you go to a shopping center in states that have a free speech uh, state constitution guarantee, you have a, a right to speak and to protest, even if you're on private property, at a shopping center, for example. And this is why in a number of places you are, you do see political booths and such set up inside shopping centers and you think well how are they do they want them there no they don't want them there but they have to have them there and that is the same thing that ought to apply on public platforms now the reason that we must demand this as conservatives is because of course we're the ones getting targeted our ideas are under attack 
But even if it swung the other way, free discourse is something to be defended. It's noble. It's necessary. Now, the other part of this, I mentioned what the Supreme Court can do. So we'll say that's a, a, a matter for the courts to solve. Here's what Republicans need to do when we take over Congress. I mean, all of Congress and the presidency. We have to rewrite the Section 230. How many times have you heard people talk about Section 230? It's in the U.S. Code. It's the protection for private blocking and screening of offensive material. And this is what gives immunity, federal law immunity to Facebook, Meta, right, to Twitter, to TikTok, whatever company, for removing harmful content, which, what does that word mean? Whatever they want, right? Harmful content was telling the truth about COVID or about the dead whales in the North Atlantic, right, for that matter. That's harmful content because you're going against government-approved speech. You've got the government scientists out there saying, nope, 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 COVID is this and that and the vaccine's safe and everything, right? We went through all that. Nearly everything government scientists told us that factcheck.org put up as the gospel truth turned out to be false. And the way we found this out, of course, is, well, a little too late, right? A lot of harm was done, but we also found out because we were able to speak elsewhere openly about it. Social media needs to catch up, but this Section 230 allows these companies to do it and to do it without getting sued. And I have a, you know, I have a proposal because there's two parts. I've mentioned this many times. There's two parts to Section 230. There's the part that says the, the company social media company, Facebook, whatever, is not held liable for the content on its site. And then part two of it is, and, and they are given immunity from lawsuits that, res, you know, that are brought by people who have been cut off or censored on their site. My proposal here would be and I hope every elected Republican is listening. My proposal is very simple. Give them the immunity. Okay, just because if I go on Facebook and I type something outrageous, for example, I say something like, well, I'm not going to say like, but I'm going to say something outrageous about somebody that's totally false. You can't sue Facebook for the fact that I put it up there. That's nonsense. Facebook ought to be protected. And I say that as a plaintiff lawyer. Like, I, I, am, I am for reasonable protections for companies. But you can't protect Facebook for on its own then taking down speech that they don't like. And this is a very conservative position, right? We hold people accountable for their speech. We hold people accountable for, for their actions, Right? You do something, you say something, you're a jerk, it's on you. We don't blame all of society for it. We certainly don't blame Facebook. We don't blame, you know, Twitter or whatnot. Your post is your post. And that's the modification that needs to be made to Section 230. It's almost inconceivable to me how much Congress capitulated to these social media companies. They gave them protection from lawsuits from people that get silenced as well as from people who are, 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 let's say, real victims of things that are on the platform that are, that are harmful. Now, here's the reality of it. 
life is rough. People say terrible things. People do terrible things. Hiding from terrible things is not good. The idea is tremendously Pollyannish that the left has that we're going to moderate speech online in order to make it a nicer, kinder platform and space for people to feel safe. That's nonsense. The world is cruel. People say terrible things to each other on the, on the street. And by the way, the left has zero problem allowing actual violence to take hold of the streets, right? We see that day in and day out. Actual horrific violence, that doesn't get prosecuted, but dare you say something hateful in your Facebook group and all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. And that's, I think, my closing argument on this, if you will, folks, as I put my lawyer hat back on here. My closing argument is that it really isn't about harm for the left. When the left goes out there and says, we want to protect the internet from people saying mean things because we don't want harm to happen, that's not what it's about. If they cared about harm, they'd put, a, they'd put their foot down on crime. They're okay with harm. They're okay mutilating 12-year-olds, giving them puberty blockers. They're okay removing healthy breast tissue of 15-year-old girls. They're fine with that. They don't care about harm. What the left cares about is power. They're totalitarians. They're the fascists. That's why they run around calling us fascists, right? I'm projecting much. They want the power to control conversation and discourse. They know, they know, folks, and this is huge, that their ideas fail on the open marketplace. They know that they're indefensible. And so I tell you, uh, this is beyond any doubt, they, this is why they want the ability to shut down what is said online. And the Supreme Court needs to stand up and go back to 1980 and bring it forward and make this law. And then Congress needs to come in and modify Section 230, just the way I've described. See, we're a problem-solving program. I provide solutions here on the What's Right Show. Sam Burjofsky here, News Talk 840 KXNT. This hour brought to you by Sam and Ash Injury Law. The left is content with destroying society as long as they themselves enrich their coffers and maintain political power. Sam Rajovsky, News Talk 840 KXNT. Thank you. I am getting uh, so many emails from you folks. I, I, I'm barely keeping up now. Uh, but I appreciate your thoughts. I, I am glad that many of you are expressing that uh, what we say here on this program uh, is very much aligned with how you uh, feel and, and what, you, what you believe in your cores. And I, I appreciate that I have the opportunity here on the What's Right Show to uh, speak for each and every one of you. Uh, but I trust you. I Trust me when I say this. I think that there are a lot more of us out there who are like-minded – and who think the way that we think, then they want us to believe. And that's part of why they want to shut down any kind of criticism of the regime on social media. Because what they don't want us to realize is that there's more of us than there is of them. 
my partner, Ash Watkins, Sam and Ash Injury Law, just sent me a, a text here with a, a story, uh, New York Post writing a piece on a famous San Francisco department store called Gump's. It's right off of Union Square. It's a very, very famous store. It's been around for 166 years. I bet you know where the story's going. You got it. It's closing. But here's why I'm bringing it up. When we talk about our strong, silent majority that they want to demoralize, that they want to break apart, that they want to silence, that they want us to believe that there's just a handful of us and that we're all kooks and whatnot. I want to read a section of a letter here posted up behind the window of the store that's closing, this Gump store. An open letter to Governor Newsom, Mayor Breed, and the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. Gump's has been a San Francisco icon for more than 165 years. Today, as we prepare for our 166th holiday season, we fear this may be our last because of profound erosion of the city's current conditions. And here's the part I want you to pay attention to. San Francisco now, this is a quote, suffers from a tyranny of the minority. Behavior and actions of the few that jeopardize the livelihood of the many. It goes on to describe uh, COVID ramifications, illegal drugs, crime, rampant crime, people getting, you know, catch and release of criminals, etc. But I want to focus on the tyranny of the minority phrase here. Because this is really the, the I don't know, when you boil it down to the Nats, A money, money, what do we got here in this country? A majority of people don't believe with Joe Biden, don't believe or agree with Joe Biden's radical policies. In fact, they're deeply unpopular. People leaving, in some cases, the Republican Party, a lot of cases, the Democrat Party becoming independents. People like Schellenberger that I mentioned earlier this hour, Alex Berenson, former Democrats, completely disgusted by the illiberalism of the Democratic Party. Both of those two gentlemen have come out and called the Democratic Party fascist in so many words, right? Heavy-handed, government-enforced groupthink, control of our lives, control of our kids, of our society. But we are letting ourselves, even in San Francisco, the liberals in San Francisco are having enough of this. And I'm not raising my voice here because I'm upset. I'm, I'm actually deeply optimistic. I'm encouraged that people are finding a voice or finding a, uh, you know, a, a some, well, but not finding, people, are, people are, are starting to see the results of their progressivism. We are right now in late stage left-wing radical liberalism. Now, what do I mean by this? It was all fun and dan, dandy, and, and it was, and I, I'm combining two expressions there, but I like it, fun and dandy. It was all easy street. 
when places like San Francisco and Los Angeles and New York were running on the fumes of the men and women who worked their A money monies off, who were, you know, who, who were, were, I mean, by today's standards, mega conservative, who owned factories, who, who donated public buildings, libraries, schools, these cities were still flush with cash and with, uh, you know, gifts and whatnot that came from industrialists, capitalists, and the like. And so it was cool to run around and say, well, I've got some leftist ideas. Look at me. And everybody goes, oh, well, that's novel. Aren't you cool? And let's talk about it. And it caught the fancy of a bunch of hippies of a bunch of self-loathing rich kids who go, I'm going to do something different than my parents. And the first generation of it still, you know, had a little bit of, you know, had a little bit of, 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 of runway, of money in the bank. But the next generation, the one that is making, calling the shots now, they got nothing. They've run out of cash. They've run out of goodwill. They've run out of patience. Gumps is out, 165 years leaving at the end of this Christmas season. Closing shop. Calling life in San Francisco abject disregard for civilized conduct, making San Francisco unlivable for its residents, unsafe for our employees, and unwelcoming to visitors from around the world. Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm telling you, this is late-stage liberalism. They, they have run out, and now they are having to pay the piper. And the, you know, I, I hope that a lot of very wealthy, mega-million-dollar Democrats lose their financial shirts from the downturn in San Francisco. Unfortunately, some of us who have investments and in, you know, this economy, nothing's localized, right? This, this is all, all going to seep into overall American economic health. But late-stage liberalism, it's like a cancer that has metastasized its spread and it is killing everything in its path. And at what point do you just let it kill everything in its path and so that someday on the rubble of what's left, you can rebuild? And I say this over and over again before I, I, I will until I lose my voice. We cannot allow this to happen in, in, in Las Vegas. We do this where, you know, we are absolutely toast. Cannot let this happen in, in, in Vegas. Uh, we are just too dependent on people visiting here and feeling safe, feeling secure. It's all hanging by a thread. The visitors decide to go somewhere else. If they decide to go to, to another party location, remember, this is a problem with San Francisco. It used to be largely fed, the downtown area, largely fed by conventions. People don't realize this. It was the number two convention destination in the country after Las Vegas. And now it doesn't even rank anymore. Nobody wants to have a convention in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, let me invite a thousand of our employees or people, vendors and whatnot to come here and get shanked. Yeah, no thanks. Not interested. All right, when we come back, folks, I'm going to get into some of these indictments, and I'm going to play for you some clips of Democrats saying the same thing that Trump said. 
But funny enough, none of these people ended up ever getting indicted. It almost makes you believe that there are two standards here uh, in this country uh, when it comes to uh, justice for all. Uh, there is a certain standard for the left, for Democrats who toe the party line, who conform to what the government wants. And then, of course, a different kind of justice for those that don't. You don't want to miss this. I'll be back in a few minutes. Sam Marjofsky, News Talk 840, KXNT. This hour brought to you by Sam and Ash Injury Law because you deserve what's right. If you've been in an accident, there's no reason to call a sleazy lawyer. It's not just about the settlement check. It's about representing your interests and your values. So call Sam and Ash at 702-820-1234 or visit samandashlaw.com. Sam Marjofsky here. The What's Right Show is on. Second hour here, live and local in beautiful downtown Las Vegas. Friends, uh, just before I get to the uh, various uh, news here on um, on what's going on with uh, with uh, Donald Trump, uh, I just want to mention Alec Baldwin back in the news. Reporters coming forward saying that it's been discovered, according to ballistic experts based in Arizona and New Mexico, that they've examined the gun that he used on the set of that ill-fated movie Rust. And that apparently the gun had been fired, that the trigger had been either pulled or depressed. And as a consequence of this, uh, legal experts are saying that Alec Baldwin could now still be charged for this. Okay, I, how is this news? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm asking, how is this news? We have something, well, there's a legal doctrine uh, that is uh, basically can be summed up. How else could this have occurred but, right? Race ipsa loquitur. How else but? The gun didn't fire itself, right? At no point does anybody that understands anything about weapons believe that this gun just, that it just fired itself. Moreover, it's on camera. Now they just have additional proof and additional testing done that said that he, you know, that he, that the, the gun fired and was fired as a result of, uh, of a, of a, I guess, of a, of a, the action of pulling the trigger. The quote is: "This fatal incident was the consequence of the hammer being manually retracted to its fully rearward and cocked position, followed by at some point a pull or rearward depression of the trigger." Okay. Fancy way of saying, he pulled the trigger. That's not the issue here. The legal issue in this case is, was it reckless for him to pull the trigger without making certain that there was a dummy round in the chamber? And I've always, my, my point uh, here has always been it, that Alec Baldwin was more than just an actor. I mean, he was a producer here. He was responsible on some higher level for all of the shortcuts that everybody was taking on the set. That's the problem here. 
mean, you hand an actor a gun, a Hollywood type, how does he know about guns and bullets and whatnot? I bet he couldn't tell a, you know, a real bullet from a fake bullet if his life depended on it. So his defenses are, you know, I, I don't know, a guy, you know, armory person hands me the gun, but if you go into it and, 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 and I, again, I don't have the police reports in front of me, but I'm, I'm reading in the media, you know, extensive reporting done on the fact that for, you know, weeks before this, there, this, this, the set, this whole production was in complete disarray. It was a mess. Somebody needs to be criminally held responsible for the death of this cinematographer. That much is uh, certain. So, I, look, I mean, I mean, it warrants a mans- manslaughter charge, certainly. Now, if he knew, if Alec Baldwin knew, for example, uh, that, you know, that there were live rounds being used by people on the set, that the armory people were, as has been reported, you know, allegedly going around, you know, firing live rounds and using the set guns for that. And he didn't check. And he didn't put the kibosh on that. Big, big legal problem. So that's what this is all about. I know you're going to see that all over the news, people reporting it breathlessly. I, I don't think that this is really new news in any way, shape, or form. All right. We've now heard... Well, we've got all four indictments in. Two of them are unlike the rest. The two that belong together, in a manner of speaking, in the Trump indictments are the, the, the third and the fourth ones. There's a degree of overlap when it comes to the alleged conduct. Now, the alleged conduct here, I, I don't know if it's, any of this is really in dispute, right? Trump sent the tweets he said, he, he, he made the phone calls he made, he left the voicemails that he left, right? He said the things that, you know, the things that came out of his mouth were, were uttered. I don't think Trump is going to defend himself by saying, I didn't tweet that out or I didn't say that. It's not going to happen. MSN.com reporting today, Trump's tweets used against him in Georgia indictment. Well, they were used against him in the January 6th indictment that Jack Smith uh, filed last month. So, or excuse me, on the, on the first of, excuse me, this month, first of August. So the allegations, and I'll just give you a couple, like from the, from the Smith indictment, the federal indictment in DC, the defendant, meaning Donald Trump, insinuated that more than 10,000 dead voters had voted in Georgia. Just four days earlier, Georgia's Secretary of State had explained to the defendant that this was false. And that is given as a, as a, as a, as a, as a reason for the charges being filed. It gives other ones, too. The defendant, Trump, asserted that there had been 205,000 more votes than voters in Pennsylvania. The defendant's acting attorney general and acting deputy attorney general explained to him that this was false, and so forth and so on, right? Trump said something about the election. Somebody inside government that had authority told him, no, that's not true. And he said it anyway. Or somebody told him it wasn't true and he said it anyway, regardless, however that came through. He was told X and he said Y. How dare he? Criminal charges, right? And that's uh, what's being done here in Georgia as well. In a criminal indictment filed Monday, this is from MSN.com, that alleged former President Donald Trump and 18 of his associates conspired to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results, prosecutors repeatedly cited a rather uncommon piece of evidence. 
to support their charges of racketeering. Twitter posts. Now, it goes on to say that Fulton County DA attorney Fannie Willis says that such acts are not necessarily crimes on their own. But remember, Rico, these are all little things that are all part of the conspiracy. Trump tweeting out and saying things, denying that the election happened. But you know what's crazy about all this, folks, is in Georgia, in Fulton County, two years ago, Stacey Abrams, four years ago, Stacey Abrams, over and over again, went on and on about how the election was stolen from her and how it was rigged. Here, five years ago, Stacey Abrams is talking to Fortune magazine. And the journalist asks her, you know, listen, should you be using the word rigged? Listen to her answer. Do you think the language, using the word rigged, using the word steal, do you think it's dangerous going into 2020? I, I don't, because we can actually back it up. We know that 53,000 people were prohibited from registering to vote because of a system called exact match. We know that 30,000 provisional ballots had to be cast because of inadequate machines including machines that didn't have power cords because who knew electric machines needed power? We know that there was one county that rejected 10% of the absentee ballots requested based on a signature match. We can provide in granular and deep detail at least 55,000 examples, but we know at least one and a half million people had their votes either interfered with, purged, or somehow manipulated. And I'm not, there are tweets too that she put out that have similar stuff to this. Stacey Abrams continued in the same interview, and this is just one where she gives a lot of specifics, and that matters, which I'll get to in a moment. We know that on November 6th, not all votes were counted, and therefore my campaign, instead of allowing, we, we actually put, we pushed every news station to not call the election because we knew that all votes hadn't been counted. We then launched television ads, radio ads, digital ads, and we were able to demonstrate that 30 more thousand votes in a 10-day period had been mis had not been counted. It was insufficient for me to prove empirically that I could win, which is why I did not, which is why I acknowledge that Brian Kemp numerically won the election. But I refuse to concede because concession means that the process was proper, that the result was true and right, and I cannot say that. In Georgia, where uh, this, by the way, this is referencing the 2018 election in Georgia, and they're having a conversation about it afterwards. In Georgia, for denying or insinuating that there was, uh, let's say, election impropriety, Trump is getting charged not only in state court, but in federal court. The federal... Indictment reads, the defendant insinuated that more than 10,000 dead voters had voted in Georgia. Okay, well, how is that different from Stacey Abrams here saying, we know at least 1.5 million people had their votes either interfered with, purged, or somehow manipulated. At least 55,000 examples of absentee ballots where signature matches weren't there. 53,000 people were prohibited from registering the vote. I mean... Is she making this up? At no point, I remember talking about this on the radio. I remember making fun of Stacey Abrams, and I think she's an absolute dimwit. But at no point did I call for her being arrested over this. 
This really isn't about Donald Trump. This is about criminalizing speech. Again, I'm a First Amendment person. I don't, I mean, I'm not here to defend Trump and his logic. I'm just here to defend him from being prosecuted from, for doing the same things that Stacey Abrams did. And by the way, other Democrats too. More on that when we come back. Sam Rajovsky, News Talk 840 KXNT. You're listening to the What's Right Show, brought to you by Sam and Ash, Injury Law. Welcome back. Sam Marjofsky here, Nevada's favorite recovering Californian. Uh, great to be with you. So, uh, you know, I, I, as a lawyer, of course, I am particularly mindful of uh, the even application of the law. It goes without saying that uh, there's one, there, it's, it's, you don't have the same kind of justice if you're filing charges against one person and never even filing charges against somebody else. Yes, in a vacuum, right? In a vacuum, I think, by the way, indictment three and four and the first one in New York are nonsense. Number two, the second indictment for the documents, I, I think there's some validity there. I could see Trump getting certainly, even in a completely dispassionate setting, getting convicted if they can prove that those documents weren't declassified. But my point on all of this is if you didn't, if you didn't uh, file charges against Hillary, well, you, you can't do it against Trump. It's virtually identical, both in timing and scope. In fact, I would argue that hers far more voluminous. It doesn't matter if it's on a server, on an email, or if it's lying in your, your closet. It's functionally the same thing, according to the law. So anyway, shared with you a couple of clips of, uh, of, of Stacey Abrams, who was a two-time gubernatorial loser, Democrat loser in uh, – in, in, in Georgia, of all places, made outlandish statements out of, after her first loss about how uh, she, you know, votes weren't counted, 55,000 people were disenfranchised, machines weren't working, etc. And just absolute nonsense, um, absolute nonsense. And I, I'm, you know, I, I bring this up because uh, she at no point was, of course, charged for any of this conduct. There's no criminal referral. She wasn't indicted in a 90-page indictment with all her co-conspirators, all the people in her campaign, her lawyers, etc. She still hasn't conceded that race. Now, she conceded the race that, that happened uh, four years later, I think in 22, right? 22, she conceded that one right after. Lost both races. Now, I'll give you an example here. Uh, let's see, page, what is this, 28. I should have, I should have highlighted this one, Robbie. Page 26, Act 26 of this vast criminal conspiracy between Donald Trump and 18 co-defendants. This is part of what was indicted in Georgia. On or about the third day of December 2020, so about a month after the election, Donald Trump caused to be tweeted from the Twitter account, at real Donald Trump, wow, blockbuster testimony taking pl right now, place right now in Georgia, ballot stuffing by Democrats when Republicans were forced to leave the large county room, plenty more coming, but this alone leads to an easy win of the state. And she calls this, Fannie Willis, the prosecutor, calls this 
an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. Now, I played for you the clips here, uh, you know, that a, a, a Stacey Abrams, a Democrat in the state of Georgia, said, okay, here's another clip. Stacey Abrams, this is March of 2019. This is a year after the election. Here's what she said. I may not have won this election, or at least, I, but I didn't lose. I got the votes, but we won't know exactly how many because of how they cheated. And so we have to be fearless and fight, deciding not to concede, deciding to say, I'm not going to let you tell me who I am is an incredibly important thing that I was able to do. And I want young people to understand, especially young women, you have to demand your space. What about Hillary Clinton? She did this too, right? Remember in 2020, when that election was going on, she still was claiming before, a month before the 2020 election that Donald Trump is now on trial for, at least in two different jurisdictions, for denying the result of it. Hillary Clinton was still grousing about the 2016 election. Here is she's uh, on Radio Atlantic talking to Edward, Edward, let me start that over. Radio Atlantic to Edward Isaac Dover, and Hillary says this. There was a widespread understanding that this election was not on the level. We still don't know what really happened, Isaac. I mean, there's just a lot that I think will be revealed, history will discover. But you don't win by three million votes and have all this other shenanigans stuff going on and not come away with an idea like, whoa, something's not right here. That was a deep sense of unease. And it wasn't it wasn't really about me so much as about our country. Oh, it was so much. It was about our country, right? Oh, that's all it was. It's just about the country. You know, Jack Smith, by the way, in his indictment, introduces the indictment of Donald Trump for January 6th. This one uh, dropped, what was it, the 1st of August? Introduces it as, despite having lost, the defendant was determined to remain in power. So for two months following election day, the defendant spread lies that there had been outcome determinative fraud in the election and that he had actually won. Now, Hillary Clinton wasn't in power. She lost the election, okay? But according to her, she didn't. She won by 3 million votes, referring to the uh, general election tally, which is why Hillary Clinton attacked what? The Electoral College? Attacked the results in different states? The 2016 election was was contested by a number of Democrats. Look, here's Dianne Feinstein. I, I don't This is before she was lost all lucidity, uh, talking about, or maybe not, talking about the outcome of the election with Chuck Todd. Listen. Do you have any doubt in your mind that Russia uh, tried to interfere in the election? And then second, do you believe it altered the outcome? The answer is yes on both cases. You truly, you believe I, it altered I truly, the outcome? That's what I believe. I've had all of the major classified briefings. I have been astonished at what has been a two-year effort at Russia to spearfish, to hack, uh, to provide disinformation, propaganda, wherever it really could. Okay, so Feinstein is lying because we now know that the classified briefings were all, you know, oppo propaganda put out by uh, Hillary Clinton. So Feinstein, and, and they knew that, right? They, knew, they weren't told in the briefings that Russia elected Donald Trump. 
So how is this any different from the vice president or the attorney general telling Trump, you lost the election? Versus Feinstein, oh, I went into the skiff and I was given a high-level briefing and I, but boy, if I could tell you, Chuck Todd, what I saw in there, if I could, if I could tell you any of it, you, I, you would really believe me that there's no doubt that Russia succeeded in interfering in the election and changed the outcome in 2016. Read, Donald Trump is not the legitimate president. Was Dianne Feinstein charged? Nope. See how this is starting to all really stink? You don't have to be a Trump fan to think that this is wrong. Sam Rajovsky, News Talk 840 KXNT. Don't go anywhere, folks. More coming straight up after this. Personal injury law is constantly changing. Uber and Lyft accidents aren't like other cases, but most law firms haven't kept up. Don't trust a new case to a lawyer who's stuck in the past. Call Sam and Ash, 702-820-1234, or visit samandashlaw.com. All right, friends, it's just simple logic. If Democrats who lose elections can claim that there was fraud, can claim that they won, in spite of people around them informing them that the claims are untrue, why aren't they being held to account for still refusing to listen to those around them? Sam Rajovsky, News Talk 840 KXNT. You're listening to the What's Right Show. This is, this is a real story here. This really is not about Trump at all. It's about criminalizing standard political conduct. Both sides, Republicans and Democrats, have been guilty of refusing to accept the outcome of elections. Now, what's interesting is, by the way, uh, we dug up a piece here producer Robbie sent to me from the archive. This is from Newsweek. Not Fox News, not Breitbart, Newsweek. Fact check. Did Democrats object to more states for 2016 than Republicans for 2020? In other words, the question posed is, did Democrats object in 2016 more than Republicans did in 2020? So the pro-Hillary people versus the pro-Trump people. 2016 versus 2020. I just want to make that really clear. Now, the writers over at Newsweek describing the tensions surrounding, this is pre-indictment, right? this is uh, 21, so this is, a, let's see here, this is probably 10 days or so before uh, Biden is sworn in. Tensions surrounding the 2020 election came to a violent crescendo on January 6th when pro-president Donald Trump rioters breached the Capitol in protest of certification of President-elect Joe Biden's 306 electoral votes. Okay. Now lawmakers are calling for Trump's removal for office for inciting the violence. It's all fairly early on. Now, as proceedings were underway, claims were made by, about how Democrats conducted themselves at the joint session that certified Trump's victory four years ago. What's the claim? A claim was made Democrats objected to more states in 2017 than Republicans did last week, but somehow were wrong. This according to Jim Jordan, Republican Ohio. Now, the facts. In the 2016 presidential election, Trump won 304 electoral votes. 
Hillary only got 227. Now, according to C-SPAN, the recording there of the joint session that took place four years ago, the following House Democrats made objections. Jim McGovern, Jamie Raskin, Pramila Jayapal, Raul Gurhalva, Sheila Jackson-Lee from Texas, who objected to votes from North Carolina in addition to South Carolina and Wisconsin, Barbara Lee and Maxine Waters, our good friend Maxine, Democrat, California. So that was the list of Democrats. So let's flash you know, forward to the 2020 election. Last week, joint session, Mo Brooks, Marjorie Taylor Greene from Georgia, and Louis Gohmert, three. So the ruling is on this, according to Newsweek, all the way back in 2021, two years, if two and a half years before all these indictments, Republicans objected less to the 2020 election. You can add Trump to there. Okay, so four objected less than Democrats. Now, why is this, why is this relevant? Well, it's relevant because uh, I, I don't know. You, you, uh, how many of you, if you were watching the news and weren't reasonably informed and didn't know what was up, would find that bit of information completely shocking? One of the congressmen here, Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin, um, is one of, the Dem- one of the Democrats here that I have in a clip. Uh, there's a series of them. This is a compilation after the 2016 Trump victory. These are all people who objected to, Democrats objected to certification of the vote. And it's real. Listen to this. Ten of the 29 electoral votes cast by Florida were cast by electors not lawfully certified. I object to the votes from the state of Wisconsin, which were not, should not be legally certified. No debate. Or reg- Mr. President, I object to the certificate from the state of Georgia on the grounds that the electoral votes no, were no not. Debate. There's no debate. And I object to the certificate uh, from the state of North Carolina. I object to the 15 votes from the state of North Carolina. Um, I object. I object to the certificate from the state of Alabama. The electors were not lawfully certified. Is it signed by a senator? Not as of yet, Mr. President. In that case, the objection cannot be entertained. The objection cannot be entertained. Counting debate is uh, not in order. Ballot. Even with the there is no debate in order. Is it signed by a senator? There is no debate. There is no debate in the joint session. There is no debate. There is no debate. There is no debate. And the Please come to order. The objection cannot be received. But the Russian Section 18, Title III of the United States Code prohibits debate in the joint session. I do not wish to debate. I wish to ask, is there one United States senator who will join me in this letter? There's no debate. There's no debate. Yeah, okay. Did any of these people get criminally charged? Were they, well, you know what they were seeking, of course? They were seeking the installation of fake electors. This was a vast conspiracy among these. Well, if you're, if you're Tammy Willis, a, a vast RICO conspiracy among these members who all were talking amongst themselves, no doubt about this, to overturn the election in 2016. I guess, you know, I, I, I guess it's fine if the Democrats do it, but gosh forbid if Trump gets it, does it. All hell breaks loose, literally criminal hell. 
you know, in the law, and I have to explain this, is very important, prosecutorial discretion, the decision who to charge and more importantly, who not to charge is one of those things that really can make an enormous difference. Who gets leaned on, right? This is why elected prosecutors are so dangerous, right, in this country. Because when you're, when you're, you know, Fannie running as a Democrat and you're running on a promise to get Trump, what are you literally saying? Vote for me and I will take the law and target a political opponent of yours, right, speaking to the people that voted for her. That's fundamentally un-American, would you not say? Alvin Bragg in New York and Manhattan ran on an almost identical platform. I'm going to get Trump. Yay, everybody said, all the mad villagers, you know, with their pitchforks and their torches. Yeah, we're going to get Trump, get Trump. And what's the problem here? The problem is, okay, you've opened a Pandora's box. We conservatives are paying attention to this. And, you know, you can, you can get Trump and you can put him in jail or whatever it is that you want to do. You can, you can ruin him. But out of the rubble that, that it results in the ashes of this is an enormous amount of conservative resentment. And people who are far more disciplined and, frankly, far smarter than Trump are watching this very closely. And I will tell you, and I, I, I'm in, you know, communicating with some of them, and, and these are people who, who are or will be in, in major authority positions. And why is that relevant? Well, it's relevant simply for the fact that at some point the pendulum will swing the other way and retribution will come mightily on all these people that have done this. And, and, and I'll tell you, even some of these prosecutors may very well end up themselves in the crosshairs and on legal shaky ground based on some of their conduct here. It's a little bit of a different case, but I will remind you, go back to the Duke lacrosse case and the prosecutor there very much ran on a platform of getting the Duke lacrosse players. Remember, he was running for re-election disgusting, cretinous little man. And so he told the public, we're going to hold these rich white boys to account for what they did to this poor African-American gal, you know, the stripper, Crystal Magnum, lying B.I. you know what. And they, you know, they, they took it almost all the way up into trial. The whole thing fell apart based on lies. Things, evidence wasn't turned over. The DA hid stuff deliberately targeting the defendants, because they were wealthy, because they were students at Duke, and because they were white. He did it to get votes. Now, if you'll recall, the DA there ended up spending a night in jail, lost his law license, and his life, as he knew it, um, absolutely destroyed. Rightfully so. Be very careful right now. If you're celebrating the stuff and, and excited, we're going to get Trump, they're going to get Trump finally, you just be, be careful. Some of these zealous prosecutors may just be a little, a little too ahead of themselves and a little too certain that their Trump derangement syndrome is really just 
a pursuit of a noble pursuit of justice and righteousness and preservation of democracy, putting those in very putting that in very loose quotes. All right. <laughs> Quick time out here. Oh, I the left is asking themselves about fatigue on all of this. Are we tired of it? They're actually worried, you know, is this going to is this going to are Americans going to take a giant yawn? <gasps> oh, no one to hear any more about Trump. Yeah, you think that's going to happen? Well, <laughs> oh my gosh, from the people that brought us the two-year J6 Inquisition Circus, from the mouth, from the mouth, mouths of idiots, I have some replies that you don't want to miss. Sam Rajovsky, News Talk 840, KXNT. New polling out today, uh... Uh, firmly cementing Trump's status as the frontrunner in the Republican primary. DeSantis, number two, Ramaswamy in third. Uh, Ramaswamy slipping a little bit in these latest polls. Uh, one thing I want to point out, friends, uh, is that in the general election, Trump v. Biden, Quinnipiac, Marist, Economist, three different polls have Biden up by only one point. I mean, listen, I... You have to think that in the back of the Democrats' minds, they're looking at that going, how is that possible? We've indicted this mother effer four times, and he just won't die, politically speaking. Sam Arjofsky, News Talk 840, KXNT. You're listening to the What's Right Show. Pleased uh, to be here, folks, and and grateful uh, to have you listening. I, I just have to express for a moment here how grateful I am to each and every one of you for your support. You are a unbelievably wonderful audience. I love hearing from you. My email, of course, sam at samandashlaw.com. Sam at samandashlaw.com. Um, I do want to hear from you particularly if you are sick and tired of listening to this indictment stuff. Be honest with me. My own sister told me she was sick of it, so I'm not going to take it personal. <laughs> well, but I am curious because... You know, on some fundamental level, I'm 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 nerding out on it a little bit. I'm a lawyer, you know, by day, so I'm I'm endlessly curious about this as a legal proceeding. I am struck by the deep injustice that's part of prosecuting Trump and none of these other people, and and there's always a new development, and so you know it's newsworthy. This program is driven by what's in the news. Now that said, some days certainly there's other stuff to talk about. And we will do that. But I do want to hear from you. If you're, if you're sick and tired of hearing about this, or if you, if you want me to keep on top of it, please let me know. Uh, and again, sam at samandashlaw.com is the email. And, uh, and don't, I, I, do, I will try as best as I possibly can to respond to each and every one of you that, um, that, that send me an email. And I, and I and only I check my own email, so I, I don't have other people looking at it. It's just me. All right. Andrea Mitchell, speaking of the fatigue of this, Andrea Mitchell asking uh, if there's election fatigue on this. Uh, She's talking to somebody that I just adore. Um, And I'll I'll tell you, this is, sorry, this is her just opining on this. Um, She's talking to, um, who is this, Baker? Peter Baker from the New York Times. Asks him how to break through election uh, this, excuse me, indictment fatigue. It was last night, MSNBC. 
Here's the question and answer. How do Trump opponents, how do they break through indictment fatigue? How do they get voters to focus on the substance of some of these indictments as many times as we use the word unprecedented? Yeah, we're in this bizarre moment, of course, where the unprecedented has become routine, right? We have now seen this four times already. And and there's no question that the country has kind of gotten oddly accustomed to it. It's, it's you know, another week, another indictment. Oh, here we go. A lot of people thought these indictments, if there was going to be an indictment, that would really pull him down politically. That obviously turned out not to be true. Even four so far doesn't seem to be doing it, at least within the Republican base. The question is whether what we talked about earlier with all of these trials and everything eventually just kind of weighs down that even Republicans who like him say, OK, enough of that. I'd like to move on. Yeah, well, OK, but he's only trailing Biden by one point today in three different polls. I want to point that out. So then, this is me skipping ahead, this was Caitlin Collins on CNN talking to one of my favorite people, Adam Schiff, old bug eye Adam Schiff. Speaking of a politician who endlessly lied about Trump, election denier, extraordinaire, Mr. Trump-Russia collusion, Collins asks him uh, if people have made up their minds, if they're desynthesized to these indictments. Adam Schiff has an answer. But do you think voters have already made up their minds? Are they desensitized to these indictments? Uh, I think that there are still a great many Americans who are going to be very interested to watch these trials. And I'm particularly grateful that in Georgia, that trial is likely to be televised. Uh, I've been urging the Judicial Conference uh, and led a letter to uh, that conference with dozens of my colleagues urging that the federal proceedings be televised because I think it's going to be enormously important that those people who have an open mind get to watch. Uh, and I'm glad the American people are going to get to watch at least one of these trials. Aha. Uh-huh. They get to watch these trials because these Hollywood Democrats love good TV. Plus, there's a Hollywood strike, you know, so what better way than to get some, some ratings uh, without using paid actors? think about that now remember their their strategy on this 24 7 hours a day covering you know trump and his trials so they don't have to talk about biden and all of his bribery nonsense they don't want to talk about biden being completely physically and mentally unfit for office they don't want to get into gas prices the economy inflation rampant crime all the progressive da's out there all their COVID lies, our loss of credit rating, the Afghanistan failure, military readiness, and child mutilation. Nope, nope, nope. They don't want to talk about that, so they want to talk about this. And so, you know, this is one of the you know, questions I ask myself, and I'm being – I'm very, you know, forward with you all here. Is, you know, I, I don't want to fall here as the host of this program into that same trap and constantly be reporting on the stuff that, you know, is, is going on with Trump when there is, is you know, news, uh, you know, relevant to Biden. But I feel like uh, certainly a week like this where this news comes out and you're reacting to it and new information is coming out, we need to cover it, right? And certainly there uh, hasn't been, uh, this week at least, any big developments with Biden. And I, I for one, am covering that uh, as you know, uh, you know, uh, just uh, very carefully and thoroughly. Now, uh, Alan Dershowitz, I want to share this here before we close. 
he was on Steve Bannon's war room talking about the indictment leak. This was just interesting because, of course, um, the, the the whole Fulton County thing, this just filled with rabid Democrats, partisan hacks. And they're doing they're going to they're going to play dirty. And I, I think this may end up resulting in in in, in them actually getting themselves into some trouble listen well the fact that they were willing to put the indictment on the website before the grand jurors voted proves something that any of us who have had experience in criminal law know the grand jury is meaningless if the prosecutor wants an indictment she gets an indictment so nobody should say oh my god a grand jury 23 people looked at the evidence and they said there was enough to indict ignore it it's nonsense the grand jury didn't decide anything. They rubber stamped something that the prosecutor put before them. And the best evidence is the prosecutor was so confident she was willing to put it on her website even before the vote took place. You know, it's Alice in Wonderland, uh, 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 verdict first, uh, execution, and then trial. Exactly. Uh, listen, it's, it, and this, by the way, is why you, you can, a lot of this confidence, a lot of this bravado may end up leading to some of these prosecutors falling flat on their faces. All right. Email me. Let me know what you think. Sam at SamAndAshLaw.com. Friends, grateful to be with you as always. I'll see you tomorrow. Be safe out there.